Hello, everyone. This is Opposed in the Matrix. Uh, this is Dave here. We are recording on a kind of an off day. Um, we kind of had uh, issues with uh, my schedule, and Ralph agreed to come on Wednesday in the afternoon instead of us doing Tuesday in the, in the evening. And I think Wednesday uh, we're going to be doing this from uh, in the afternoon anyway, or in the evening anyway, right, Ralph? Uh, we had talked about that. Okay, okay, that's good. So, uh, anyway, folks, uh, that haven't been said, uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, the New Age religion, secular humanism, Albert Pike, and dog, uh, Morals and Dogma, Albert Pike's book. Um, I've got a copy of it. Where am I here? I can't see me anymore. Okay, there it is. I got a copy of it right here. And I want everybody to know Ralph and I both have copies just for reference purposes. We do not subscribe to Mormonism. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, that too, but we don't subscribe subscribe well, to. Let me uh, see a copy too, David. So uh, I, I've had a copy yeah. since 1973, David. <laughs> well, how old is yours? <laughs> Mine's 1929. <laughs> well, I know they were was published in 1871, I think it was 1879, and I bought it. I bought it in 1879. Dave. I got an uh, original copy. <laughs> yeah, Come on, that's, Dave. That's that too. And folks are going to notice that uh, we're wearing rival hats. Uh, I have uh, Oregon State University, and and uh, Ralph is wearing Arizona State. I think it's Arizona State. No, isn't it? you <laughs> had, that's our Bible, our enemy, Arizona State <laughs> University. Yeah, it's Arizona, University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, and Arizona State is in in a suburb of Phoenix called Mesa. So oh, okay. Or in Tempe, Tempe. And okay. so it's not even in Phoenix, our state capital. But uh, So this is the Arizona, University of Arizona, with the better school of the two. Well, if that's a better man. I'd hate I'd hate for our our people to play uh, the other school because we'd really clean the floor with them. Uh, you guys are a little bit of a challenge, but oh, yeah. I, I made the statement, David. I want to date it. Today's what October the second. Right. This basketball team of the University of Arizona are going to play starting you know November. If this team does not win the national championship, it's it's of that caliber. The players they've got are absolutely phenomenal. They've done it all. They've got one of everybody. And when they get that team going, they've got depth for the first time in years. You know, because they used to have five, and then maybe they'll play three others. We've got ten players that are equal in ability, which means when the starter goes out, the second guy comes in, he's just equally as good as the first guy. Uh, and so we're going to clean the, the Pac-12 this year. So I'm making that prediction. We're going to win the Pac-12 and then win the national championship October the 2nd, 19, uh, 2019. 
Okay. Well, you're on. You're on. That and the Dodgers and Yankees. So, yeah. By the way, you've got the same problem in Oregon. There's also a university in Oregon, and you have one another called Oregon State, like you're from. So you've right. got the same problem. But you don't call. If I called you Oregon, you would. You'd probably take great offense. So you call my <laughs> university. You know what? You're right. You're right. You're right. You're, I, I gotta admit, you're right. My wife is a uh, a U of O fan, and so we're we're a house divided. But I just can't. I can't root for a team that's that's called the Ducks. I'm sorry. I just can't do that. <laughs> uh, so the side to that. Every day, this I, I way back way back in 1966, I saw, I heard of some guys who were playing uh, uh, fantasy football. And I, I heard enough of it to know how they were working it on. I said, that sounds like a great idea. So when, right. I, went to the, uh, when I went to work for the uh, school district, there were you know a bunch of my age group in our 30s and 40s. So I, got, I think I got eight of us together, and we created the, uh, uh, the South, South Arizona Football League, and each of us had a, uh, a picked a team. So I picked the team. There's a Marana, which is a suburb of Tucson. So my football team was called the Marana Marshmallows. And I used to, pro- <laughs> used to proudly proclaim the Fighting Marshmallows from Marana will defeat so-and-so next year. You well, the go- Ducks don't seem so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so the Marana Marshmallows did win. We played one year, and then I, my job got eliminated from the budget. But anyway, so I didn't win the first year. I think I placed in the middle, but I won about half of the game. Anyway, that's enough. Well, that's good. That's good. So, uh, Ralph, uh, we were starting off every show, um, you know, during the series anyway, uh, maybe further, with a little statement about um, spending. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, we, yeah, I, I, I forgot all about it till just now, as a matter of fact. So, <clears throat> but. Um, I printed up a flyer. There it is. You can see it's just a piece of paper, one sheet. I just want right. to, because uh, uh, the reason we're doing this, this ain't the third time we've done this. I'm asking you, if you're listening, please get familiar with these two terms. They're simple, and they're going to explain who's going to pay for all this free stuff. It's not going to be the wealthy. No. And this will define it for you. Right there, we're going to read it. Free stuff. I've got presidential candidates. I should see Democrat presidential candidates are offering the people of America free college tuition, pay off student loan debt, free medical care, free abortions, reparations or payments to the blacks. Who is going to pay for these? Why, of course, everybody says the wealthy. Oh, yeah? No, it's going to be the middle class. Let me tell you why. The economists... Today, especially, this is probably something maybe 30, 40 years old. They divide annual salaries into discretionary spending and non-discretionary spending. And I'm asking you to get familiar with these words and put them in your vocabulary. Let's talk about non-discretionary spending. Those are the bills you have to pay from your salary or income, like the mortgage, insurance, lights, heat, car payments, etc., if you don't make your mortgage payment, you lose your house. If you don't buy insurance and they catch you, you're going to be fined. If you don't pay your light bill, they'll shut it off. If you don't pay your heat bill, they'll shut it off. Car payments, they'll foreclose and uh, repossess it. So right. this is, in other words, if you make $50,000 and you, uh, your uh, 
non-discretionary spending is 30000 and you've got 20000 of discretionary spending, which means you're free to decide what to do with that money. And say, in our real example, 50000 minus thirty is $20,000. That's mm-hmm. called discretionary spending. I'm asking you to get familiar with these two terms and then use them when you get a discussion about this. Because that's, if you want to go to, say, go see Grandma, you better get a check your discretionary spending. Can I afford it? You want to take a vacation or something? You better look into your discretionary spending to see whether you got money left over. You want to uh, you know, uh, buy a sculpture or something or a painting. You better, in other words, it's stuff that you got left over. You want to go to movies or theaters, you better make sure you got discretionary. So the Democrats are going to tax your discretionary spending until it's going to disappear. Right. Because they know you got it. How do they know? The government already knows you have discretionary spending. You told them when you paid your income tax. Your salary minus your expenses leaves you with a amount of discretionary spending. In other words, that's what they're going after. In California, they're finding ways to keep this up. Right. They're, they're taxing the most ludicrous things. There's a buildup to uh, allow you to you know, somehow te- charge you for your texting. How are they going to know that? But they'll find a way, and then when they do, they're going to tax you for it. They're going to put some sort of mileage tax in your car. Get you one of these things that's going to tell you how many miles you drive and whether you drive right. fast and everything else. This is all coming out of your discretionary spending. And it's going to hit the middle class is leaving California in droves. That's they're right. Getting out because they're getting overtaxed. Mm-hmm. I'll give you one little example. Uh, a four-bedroom house with uh, two two bathrooms in Tucson costs you maybe $200,000. Uh, right. That's a nice, nice, nice you know, medium price or maybe a little better. And an equivalent house like that in California is going to cost you 400000 So right. people, are, people are selling their their $400,000 house and coming to Tucson and buying a brand new one for 200000 and of comparable quality. That's right. the difference between the 200000 and 400000 is your discretionary spending. Uh-huh. So you might be making $100,000 a year, but you're spending seventy, eighty thousand 80000 of it on your taxes, etc., all these other payments. So right. please, discretionary spending and non-discretionary spending. Thank you for reminding me. I forgot <clears throat> Somebody you know, Ralph, i got to tell you, because, you know, you can use the same method to look at paychecks. There's gross and there's net. Net is what you get. That's how I always remember that. But the gross is what you've, you've really made, and it shows it in my pay stub up in the upper left-hand corner. And then by the time they take out <clears throat> Social Security tax, state tax, uh, federal tax, there's another tax that I can't, I'm forgetting right now. Uh, union dues, uh, everything else. Um, I, I looked at it one day, and, and you know, it's it's almost eight hundred dollars a month they're taking out. You know, and then so then you're left with whatever meager amounts left there, and and uh, so in, in the same way, net is kind of like uh, or gross is kind of like the. Well, I'm trying to put it here. One of them is the discretionary. Or the non-discretionary is what you, what you pay in taxes and right. union dues and everything else, and and the non-discretion or excuse me, the discretionary is what you what you get. 
definitely. Exactly. So we're talking net and gross. If you wanted to use that comparison, because most of the people listening to us, you know, they uh, they listen by um, or they work, and and yeah. so they can use that as a comparison so, too, I guess. And I'll give you a little example, just real quick. I think I've used it. I'll re- probably use it every time. Uh, a friend of uh, some friends of mine had a daughter going to the University of Arizona, uh, not Arizona State today, but not Arizona, okay. Arizona, and she got her PhD here. So she was at her apartment with it was up in the northwest part of town, you know, several miles from Tucson, but that's fine. And it was five hundred dollars a month, and it had all the accoutrements, you know, the swimming pool and the uh, tennis courts and basketball courts and a gymnasium and. Uh, uh, clothes laundry down on the first floor and, uh, and a covered parking for the heat and all the amenities. That uh-huh. she, she got her first job after college at, in Modesto, which is a small farming community up there around Sacramento. South of Sacramento. Yeah, right. So yeah. she got there, and her, the same apartment is $1,500 a month. Yeah, I believe $1, it. $1,000 more because <laughs> of taxation. They kept raising taxes, and when they raised it on the building owner, he raises the, yeah, the tax. So you've got to get more money. So she's probably making a good living. If she comes to Tucson with that amount of money, she can live very well. But she's oh, yeah. making a lot of money, but you subtract out of the non-discretionary spending. She's got probably very little discretionary spending left. Uh-huh. And this is why this is so very important. You've got to get to know this. We're, the welfare is not going to pay for all this free stuff. Right. Well, well, you know, you talk to people. I've got friends over in Denmark and stuff like that, and <clears throat> you know, they're all socialized over there, and they have a lot of problems over there. I think they 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 pay like forty five percent tax, you know, altogether. Yeah, yeah. It's nice that they have socialized medicine over there, but they're paying for it. You, you know, know. It, it, I, there was a little a, a message came in from a college student. There was apparently this summer. Uh, I guess, I don't know how they do it, but you can go there and live off of, uh, there's words for that place you can go rent for the night. It's not like a motel. It's probably a place to put your... your a hostel. Yeah. Uh, hostel. And he was saying that he uh, he'd meet people and they'd go out for a night on the town and now they could afford was a McDonald's. Uh, right. Can't go to right. the restaurant where they get, you know, Vichy Swag and all the things or the champagne you got to go for a night on the town. We can right. to be, a, you know, fast food. We go there for, uh, you know, cook hamburger or something. So that's uh-huh. the problem because they're taxing the, all of the discretionary spending out away from them. So it becomes non-discretionary spending. That's what it's mm-hmm. all about. So please get right. those two terms. Right. Uh, folks, I just want to apologize. I, uh, my wife is gone, so we I have all the dogs here. And if you hear dogs barking in the background, please forgive us. Um it's just the way it is. Uh, so I don't know if you can hear it, Ralph, but I can no, hear I it here. Okay, well, good. Good. So anyway, um, that haven't been said. So, Ralph, what's what's on the docket tonight? Well, let's, let's go back to you held up morals. Now, there's my copy of it. Right. Uh, I just want to read. We're going to discuss many things during this uh, two hours today, but I wanted to read one specific quote, which will be covered by page on page 833, and I think you've got a copy of the book as well. You can verify uh, uh-huh. what you're going to read. But here's my copy, and there's I'll show you that page 833 right there. I think that's it. Right. We're going to read it together, and you can verify. Listen to this. It is not true to say that, quote, one man, however little, 
must not be sacrificed to another, however great, to a majority, or to all men, end quote. That is not only a fallacy, but a most dangerous one. Often, one man and many men must be sacrificed in the ordinary sense of the term to the interest of the many. Mm. See, I thought Christ in the Old Testament taught thou shalt not murder. Does that mm. say there's no commandment like that? Isn't that what it says? Yep, that's what it's saying. Now, let me ask you this, David. If you were Franklin D. Roosevelt and you planned World War II and you knew Japan was going to strike Pearl Harbor, could you sit in the White House and wait for the notification of the attack? No, because I've got a conscience. I've got to live with myself. Yeah. I would probably, if I knew it was coming, I probably would have attacked the, the Japanese fleet ahead of time. But, you know. but not only that, let's finish with it. That war killed 53 million people. And yeah. it was planned by Franklin Roosevelt and his friends. Mm -hmm. That's scary. And yeah. because uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was a 32nd degree Mason, so he, he knew he had to read that book and he must right. have known. So he could sit in the White House on the Sunday morning waiting for notification of the Japanese attack. Yeah. What type of man is that? Well, it's no different than another guy who was sitting there and didn't act very surprised when he found out that the twin towers fell either. Yeah. He was exactly. reading the children and he didn't get up right away and say, Oh my goodness, let's get out of here and go. It was like, Oh well, you know, it's finally happened and well, let's just uh, let's just plan a war. Let's go over to the Middle East and just blow people away and well, everything well, else. But, you know, he actually said, uh, uh, President uh, Bush, that he saw the first attack uh, as it happened on live TV. How did he do that? It was in the car. Right, right. <laughs> Is he telling us that there's a they had live coverage as he was driving in the car? The, the car that he was driving in had a TV monitor in the back seat he could watch. So someone was actually filming it so he could watch it. How else? Could, that statement is, is, there was no live car unless you were President Bush. So right. I was out of that subject. That, that, that thing bothers me. Yeah, I know. That, that upsets me too. So. Okay, that's only one of the many quotes we'll be discussing in this because we're discussing the Masons as well. And then the second thing I want to talk about is this book. Okay, the uh, yeah. Hold on, let me. Uh, I got to the inter. Oh, see the inner path from where you were and where you're, where you are, and where you want to be. A yeah. spiritual odyssey. And that's there's the author Terry Cole Whitaker. She Terry used to be a Christian. Yes, that's the next thing I was going to say. She was a TV evangelist, and apparently maybe only in Los Angeles. I don't know, but she had an old ministry. You can see she's a typical, you know, lovely blonde, and she can smile and give a beautiful smile. So people, I'm sure, were enraptured by her. Well, she decided she wanted to go to Yelm, Washington, and go to a conference of J.Z. Knight. And by the way, she's uh, J.Z. Knight's another one of these beautiful blondes. But she had a seminar up there uh, in Yelm, Washington, and she she got them into the New Age religion because she channeled. You know what channeling is? Yeah, it's listening to demons. It's it's uh, prohibited in the Bible, as a matter of fact. Well, you 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 actually sit in the, the channel either speaks to your brain or actually in, in body, gets involved in your body. But another way, you channel 
and she channeled a being called Ramta. <laughs> so she would speak to the people there in attendance, and she came up. And let me just read a couple of things about uh, uh, what this woman, uh, this woman, this fundamentalist Christian, because she rejected uh, Christianity to come up with this. Let me read one quote, and then we'll, there'll be several during when we get to that section in the tapes today. But just watch for it. Okay. Those who oppose such a vision will, in fact, simply disappear. Now, if you don't like the New Age, you're going to simply disappear. She doesn't say how that's going to happen, but Ramtha's going to ask her to go out and butcher people. Right. Are you going to do that or not? You believe in Ramtha? He's the being that's in charge, and he's speaking to Jay-Z Knight, and so... Be, get ready for that. Where do you read what this thing is about? Uh-huh. You know, in, uh, in, uh, there's, there's a book called The Project uh, World Evacuation put out by the Ashtar Command. And uh, in that book, too, it said that uh, those who, it's very similar verbiage, those who don't believe what we have to say, and uh, she, she seems to allude that it's Christians, will be removed to another place where they will be happier. Yeah, in other words, we're going to kill you so you can go to heaven, and we're, we're going to be rid of you. So. And, and, of course, leads to the question of uh, the uh, Georgia Guidestones. Oh, yeah. We've got to live with 500 million people. That means 92% of us have to simply disappear. Right, right. And when you read my book, The New World Order, I must have found six people all saying, back in, I wrote that book in the late 80s, Say, I'll say 1990, uh, that book, and I quoted about six people all saying the same thing about we got to get down to 500 million people. Right. Okay. My question is, who, which one of them is going to stand up to be an example and be first? Oh, yeah, they'll go out and say yes. Okay, this is, there's, there's the DVD for this. This is the, the jacket I have. You'll see all the white stuff is all the things we're going to talk about. Uh, okay. Two hours to re- remain. So, wow. You're ready to go whenever you're ready, David. Okay. We will conclude this part of it and then uh, attach it to the, uh, uh, the presentation. And let me end with this. Go cats. <laughs> go beavers. Beavers at least construct something. <laughs> They're builders. <laughs> okay. On that note, I will go ahead and end this, and then we'll... Uh, We'll, I'll, we'll continue talking, okay, but uh, I want to stop the recording. So here we go. Part 5. Another historic figure who said something similar to those statements by Pike and Dewey was Nikolai Lenin, the father of Russian communism, the man who murdered as many as 40 million Russians to provide the nation with the economic and political system known as Communism. He has been quoted as saying, Communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and morality. And just like Dewey and Pike, Mr. Lenin believed in the unbelievable. He wrote that an eternal truth could be abolished. The word eternal is defined as without beginning or end, forever the same, always true or valid. That which is eternal cannot change. 
is it is always true. That which is eternal cannot be abolished because it is by definition unchangeable. Yet Lenin the communist said that communism abolishes eternal truth. Once again, it doesn't take a genius to understand that his statement was a monstrous absurdity. Because that which is eternal cannot, by definition, change. But Pike, Lennon, and Dewey all thought that those things that cannot change are changeable. So once again, I amend my statement. Stupidity. Thy names are Pike, Dewey, and Lennon. These are the thoughts of men who are not capable of clear thought. Men out of touch with reality. Anyone out of touch with reality is called insane. It doesn't take a genius to understand that simple absolute. Now that I've introduced the subject of situation ethics to you, I would like to show you that this is a tenet of a religion called secular humanism. This is a booklet containing the first and second humanist manifestos signed by hundreds of, according to their own words, quote, individuals of prominence and distinction, end quote. Let me show you some of the names of the more prominent signers to see if any of them are known to you. Signed by John Dewey, American educator, Isaac Asimov, science fiction writer, Andrei Sakharov, Russian writer, B.F. Skinner, Harvard University psychologist, and Betty Friedan, American feminist and founder of the National Organization of Women. These generally are not really well-known names, but are individuals of some repute amongst American intellectuals. The first manifesto was issued in 1933 and the second in 1973 on the 40th anniversary of the first one. The Humanists issued Humanist Manifestos 3 in 2003, and I read the list of signers to this one and found these better-known names in the list. James Amazing Randy, the magician, Oliver Stone, the filmmaker, and Kurt Vonnegut, the author. I would like to briefly cover some of the basic tenets of this religion. The first manifesto states these beliefs are religious uh, and regard the universe as self-existing and not created. As we have already discussed, this idea is not scientific, nor is it logical. It is simply not true. Humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as the result of a continuous process. The manifesto says we are convinced that the time has passed for theism. Theism is defined as a belief in one God. The same theme is basically repeated in the second manifesto. They said, Traditional theism is an unproved and outmoded faith. 
we find insufficient evidence for a belief in the existence of a supernatural. I would like to pause in our discussion of humanism to respond to this last comment made by the humanist religion. I have written a 24-page booklet entitled God Exists, Proof for, the, Proof for the Skeptic that uses science, logic, and reason to totally disprove this tenet of the humanist religion. The reader of this booklet will learn by his own answers to three questions that I will pose for their answers that will convince the reader that there is a God, a supreme being, and that faith in this God is not based upon faith any longer. It is based upon the truth. God does exist, and the reader can know that with scientific certainty. This booklet is available through my catalog uh, during uh, is on the at the end of the uh, of this seminar, uh, this lecture. Now let me continue with the tenets of the humanist religion. Promises of immortal salvation is both illusory and harmful, and then they repeat their belief in evolution. Science affirms that the human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. Let me pause once again to comment on this belief of the humanist religion because this statement is blatantly false. I have prepared an article that discusses the age of the earth by examining scientific evidence. Note, scientific evidence that it is no older than 6,000 years old. This is how the article starts. I'm going to quote from a series of articles I have in my files in a folder marked Age of Universe. I will not quote any books except one to provide some evidence that those who claim the Earth is billions of years old are not being scientific. If only one of these decay rates, 88 decay rates, is correct, evolution is a total fraud. The evolutionists and the believers in the humanist religion are simply wrong. Their theory that the earth and the universe are billions of years old is false. I will cite the first example from this article to show you that there simply is not enough time for evolution to have taken place. Donald Patton, in his book entitled Catastrophism and the Old Testament, on page 63, quotes the book entitled Atlas of the Solar System, published by Rand McNally, 1983, pages 72 and 73. In 1979, evidence was put forward indicating that the sun was shrinking. From an analysis of solar diameter measurements made at the Royal Observatory, Greenwich, England. Over a period of 120 years, from 1836 to 1954, it was suggested that the diameter of the sun was decreasing by about 0.1% per century. 
if this figure was correct and represented the uniform rate of decrease, the sun would have been twice its present size about 100,000 years ago and would shrink to a point in the next 100,000 years. Then Mr. Patton added his comments to the quote given above. Moore and Hunt entitled this section Solar Oscillations, for which oscillations there is not a shred of evidence. In other words, the sun shrinks according to this theory and then expands in a rhythm. But that cannot be because the sun is a candle burning itself as it produces light. But the scientists are saying that it will never burn out. Maybe these geniuses could invent a candle that would burn forever, just like the sun, and they could all become millionaires and we wouldn't need electricity. But going back to the Royal Observatory, please note, remember, that if only one of these scientific evidences, and there are 88 of them, evolution cannot be true. It is a total fraud. Because there simply is not enough time for their theory about life to evolve. Evolution is a scientific fraud. And as I said, there are 87 other evidences that the Earth is young. If you want to read this article, please go to my website and send me an email, and I will gladly mail it to you. Now let me return to the discussion of the beliefs of the humanist religion. Here is the essence of their faith. We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is situational, needing no theological sanction. This is what our public schools are teaching. No God, evolution, and no morality. Now let me show you that humanism has been officially declared as a religion. Barbara Morris, in her book, Change Agents in the School, wrote that there was a case before, brought before, a case brought before the Supreme Court in 1961 entitled Torqueso versus Watkins. The Supreme Court stated, among religions which do not teach what would generally be considered a belief in God are Buddhism, Taoism, secular humanism, and others. This case was followed by another Supreme Court decision entitled U.S. versus Seeger in 1965. This time, the Supreme Court stated a humanistic belief that is sincerely professed as a religion shall be entitled to recognition as religious under the Selective Service Law. So the United, so the Supreme Court, so the Supreme Court of the United States has officially declared a belief in no God, evolution, and no morality is an officially recognized religion. That position was repeated on March the 5th, 1987, when a federal judge ruled that secular humanism 
was a religion. This is U.S. Judge Brevard Hand, who heard and then ruled on the case. The judge ruled that secular humanism is a religion that is unconstitutionally advanced in the nation's public schools. The word secular is defined as of or pertaining to worldly things as distinguished from church things. So it all fits. Paul Kurtz, a signer of Humanist Manifest, Humanist Manifesto II and the editor of the Humanist magazine, declared in 1987 that the American, American Humanist Association, apparently the most influential of all of the humanist organizations had a religious tax exemption. That means that it will accept donations that can be deducted from the donor's income taxes. This is Madeline Murray O'Hare, the woman who removed prayer from the public schools in 1963. She was elected and then re-elected to the board of the American Humanist Association. So the question is, why should the Christians worry? This is just a small organization of relatively obscure individuals who write manifestos and do little else. Let's look at the writings of Charles Francis Potter, who was a signer of Humanist Manifesto I. He wrote a book entitled Humanism, A New Religion, in 1930. And in 19, I'm sorry, and on page 128, he wrote this, education is thus the most powerful ally of humanism. And every American public school is a school of humanism. He then addressed the Christian community who answered that they could undo all that the humanists do in public education with their Sunday school teaching. What can the theistic Sunday schools meeting for an hour once a week do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? This picture of a classroom and a public school teacher and her students says it all. Your children are targets of secular humanism. Could this be the major reason that homeschooling by parents is growing daily in the United States. But surely we can count on the Masons, the men of character and principle, to save us from public education. This is once again Henry Clausen, a past leader of the Scottish Rite that we've looked at before. He wrote this little pamphlet entitled, What is the Scottish Rite? And in it he wrote this. We therefore advocate complete separation of church and state. Hands off our public schools. Keep church and state forever separated. This again is once, this is once again the book entitled Masons Who Helped Shape Our Nation, written by Mr. Clausen, the 33rd degree Mason. On page 71, he wrote, Dr. Glenn L. Archer, Executive Director, and Dr. C. Stanley Lowell, Associate Director of the Americans United for Church and State, are both 
third degree Masons. So now we know why the Masons want us to keep our hands off of public education. They want to separate church, meaning that moral teachings taught by Christianity and state so that they can teach another religion called humanism in our schools. So I say keep humanism and the state separated forever. Now let me show you how Albert Pike wrote what is probably the most destructive statement ever penned by humanist man. Once you understand what I'm about to quote, you will understand some of the most devastating events of history. Because this statement gives this criminal conspiracy the permission to murder. What Mr. Pike wrote is in full agreement with Dewey and Lenin when he confirmed that he also did not believe in moral absolutes. He wrote this on page 833 of Morals and Dogma. It is not true to say that one man must not be sacrificed to another, to a majority, or to all men. That is a most dangerous fallacy. Often one man and many men must be sacrificed in the ordinary sense of the term to the interest of the many. And then Mr. Pike repeated the thought on page 834 so that no one could question what he meant. He wrote, the interest and even the life of one man must often be sacrificed to the interest and welfare of his country. Just to make certain that all can know exactly what Mr. Pike is saying, I went to my dictionary to define the word sacrifice. The art, the act, the act of offering the life of a person in homage to a deity. So it appears that Mr. Pike was saying that one man's life meant nothing if it was to be sacrificed to a higher object and that his deity gave him permission to do this. The biblical teaching is that every human has an absolute, God-given, unalienable, meaning that the right cannot be taken away except by God, right to life. And therefore, the sacrificing of one man's life for any cause is called murder. Here, Mr. Pike stated that often one man may be sacrificed if it benefits the many. This is called murder by the God of the Bible, who specifically forbade man from committing this act. He taught man, thou shalt not murder. And this teaching is called a moral absolute, one that God wanted man to obey at all times. And to show that at least one member of the Masonic Lodge believed in the literal translation of Mr. Pike's permission to a member of the Lodge that he could sacrifice one man for the cause of the many, it is only necessary to examine the involvement of President Franklin Roosevelt in the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. That attack, which occurred on December the 7th, 1941, was called a day of infamy by the President on December the 8th, 
when he asked the Congress of the United States for a declaration of war against the attackers. Please remember that President Roosevelt was a member of the Masons at the time, and this picture appeared in the March 8, 1949 issue of Life magazine. That is, of course, Franklin Roosevelt photographed in 1935 at a Masonic meeting with his sons, James and F.D. Jr., wearing his apron as a symbol of his membership in the order. President Roosevelt was, in essence, admitting that he had no prior knowledge of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, so he was therefore powerless to prevent it. And to make the American people believe that he did not know, he appeared to be angered. However, all he had to do was know, to know that the Japanese were planning the attack on that Sunday, December 1941, was to read the Hilo Hawaii Tribune of the Sunday before. It is now history that the writer of that article knew in advance because the headline for the Sunday, November the 30th, 1941 edition reads, Japan may strike over weekend, meaning the weekend of December 6th and 7th, 1941. Now, just to show you how close this was to the actual attack, I prepared this little calendar for the months of November and December of 1941. The article appeared the actual Sunday before the attack, shown in blue on the 30th of November. One can only wonder how it was that the Hilo newspaper was able to figure this out and know in advance, but the intelligence departments of the government of the United States were not. So all the president had to do to prevent the attack was read just one newspaper. Yet we are being taught that he did not know. But the terrifying question is not being answered because it is not being asked. How could President Roosevelt, if he knew about the impending attack before it happened, allow it to happen? And the answer is that he knew and did nothing because he must have read and believed Albert Pike's teaching about the sacrifice of one man for the many. If you believed Mr. Pike's teaching of the morals of the Masonic Lodge and President Roosevelt as a 32nd degree should have read Pike's book entitled Morals and Dogma after receiving the 14th degree, then it would not be a stretch of the imagination to believe that the President could have sacrificed those men at Pearl Harbor for what he perceived to be a greater good. And there is ample evidence to believe that the president had been offered what he considered to be a greater good, the biggest prize ever offered to any individual in the history of the world. The presidency of a world government to be called the United Nations that would be created after the end of World War II. If you believed, as apparently President Roosevelt did, that a world government was of great benefit to mankind, and if you believe that one man may be sacrificed to the cause of the many, it is no stretch of the imagination to deduce that President Roosevelt believed that what happened at Pearl Harbor was acceptable 
for the greater good of mankind. And for those who want to know that this evidence in the Hilo, Hawaii newspaper that he knew about the attack on Pearl Harbor in advance is only one of an incredible accumulation of evidence on the subject, may I suggest that you read my book entitled The Unseen Hand, because it is in the chapters on World War II that I discuss the evidence that these statements are true beyond a shadow of a doubt. The last piece of the evidence that the president knew in advance about the attack comes from the last few pages of the book entitled Clausen's Commentaries on Morals and Dogma, written by Henry C. Clausen, a 33rd degree Mason. At the time the book was written, meaning in 1974, Mr. Clausen was the sovereign grand commander of the Scottish Rite, meaning he held the same position as did Albert Pike himself years before. The short biography of his life in these pages reveals that Brother Clausen was a member of the Army Pro Harbor Board and conducted further investigations. Notice he conducted several, the pearl of many investigations into the Pearl Harbor disaster. If Mr. Clausen felt that the truth about Roosevelt's foreknowledge about the Japanese attack would bring discredit to the Masonic Lodge if it ever became public, it would be in keeping with several of the oaths he took in the Masonic Lodge to make certain that the American people did not find out. In other words, if Mr. Clausen was asked to sit on a governmental board to determine if President Roosevelt could have prevented this disaster, and if he found out that he could have, Brother Clausen had taken oaths inside the lodge to protect his brother Mason. Some of these oaths that Mr. Clausen took as he progressed through the fourth through the 32nd degrees are as follows, beginning with the 15th degree as quoted from this obligation of a 29th degree Mason, I further promise and swear that I will aid and assist and protect a worthy brother knight and see that no wrong be done him if it be in my power to prevent it. So it can be reasonably inferred that this solemn oath and others that Mr. Clausen pledged to assist a brother Mason in trouble. That means that he would do all within his power, including serving on a board investigating the attack to keep the fact that he knew about the impending attack in advance away from the American people because the president was his Masonic brother. He had taken an oath to do so that he was obligated to keep. So now we know why the American people believe today that President Roosevelt did not know of the impending attack of Pearl Harbor. In fact, there have been nine congressional investigations into the Pearl Harbor attack, and it is quite likely that Mason served on all of these investigations. And it is no longer a question as to why they found that Roosevelt did not know about the attack in advance. But let me return to the issue at hand. Remember that Mr. Pike has said that what is untrue today may become true in another generation. The opposite of that position, also true by Mr. Pike's statement is 
what is true today may become untrue in another generation. So yesterday's absolutes do not have to be tomorrow's absolutes because there are no such things. And even if there are absolutes, they can change with time, but then they weren't absolutes then either. This statement by Mr. Pike is complementary to the ones in which he expresses the morality of the Masons called situation ethics and the belief that there are no moral absolutes. Let there be no doubt about it. The Masons do not believe in moral absolutes. The Bible teaches that man is not to decide for himself what is good and what is evil. This ability to know for himself was called the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden into which God placed the first man and woman. And man was instructed by God not to eat of this knowledge. Man was to learn good and evil from the moral absolutes taught to him by God. In fact, it is an interesting exercise to check the number of times that the words good and evil are used in the Bible. My personal computer has a program of the King James Version of the Bible in it, and I did a word search on the word evil. It was used 568 times in both the Old and New Testament. If you add in the number of times that the word good is used, and that number is 655 times, the total number of times that the two words are used is 1,223, exceeding the 942 times that the word Jesus is used. That means that the Bible is not only about Jesus, it is about good and evil, and how man is to know and learn how God has taught us to know the difference between the two. So they keep this knowledge from their fellow Masons by concealing that truth behind a symbol that they intentionally mislead their brothers about when they explain it to the initiate during the rituals. And that symbol used for this purpose is a sun. Mr. Pike wrote on page 366, our lodges are said to be due east and west because the master represents the rising sun. Don't notice that Mr. Pike identified the fact that their master, the equivalent of the president of the lodge, is a symbol of the rising sun. Here he is not talking about the sun, the brilliant orb that lights the day and disappears during the night. He's talking about the sun, a concealed God for whom the sun is a symbol. He explained that this sun is only a symbol of something else on page 12. The three lesser of the sublime lights are the sun, the moon, and the master of the lodge. But the sun and moon do in no sense light the lodge unless it be symbolically. And then the lights are not they, but those things of which they are the symbols. Notice that Mr. Pike has deified the sun so that it becomes the sun. He wrote on page 13, the sun. Notice that the word is capitalized as you would do for the name of a deity. 
The sun is the ancient symbol of the life-giving and generative power of the deity. So the sun is a symbol of a deity. Mr. Pike will identify that deity in another part of his book. One of the ways he does so is through comments like this one from page 15. Osiris himself symbolized by the sun. So the Masons, the Mason learns that the sun inside their lodge was a symbol of Osiris, an early god of the Egyptians. This quotation comes from page 776. The sun is the sign of truth because it is the source of light. Let me try to explain it like this. The physical sun is the source of light during the day. And that is a symbol of a secret God only known to the adepts inside the ancient mystery religion. So the Mason seeks light from not the sun, but the God behind the symbol. We shall see this symbol as we continue our discussion. This is what Mr. Pike wrote on page 32. Masonry is a march and a struggle toward the light. Notice that the Masons admit that they are in a, quote, struggle, end quote. And that the struggle is symbolized by the struggle between light and darkness. Darkness cannot exist in a condition of light. So the Mason is told to combat darkness by secret means. It is still necessary to combat the influence of darkness and night by less open means. And Henry Wilson Coyle provides the Mason with a little clue about the real nature of the light he is seeking. Light is everywhere the symbol of intelligence, information, knowledge. You may remember that Pike has written, the true use of knowledge is to distinguish good and evil. And truth and is, and is opposed to darkness, which symbolizes ignorance and evil. So the Mason is a light seeker, and the source of this light is the secret, or at least one part of the secret, inside the book entitled Morals and Dogma. Mr. Pike later connects the light to a god in what appears to be a prayer, because during the 24th degree ritual, he has the Mason say the following, as written on pages 77 and page 593. Thousands of years ago, men worshipped the sun. Originally, they looked beyond the orb, meaning the sun, to the invisible God, the sun. The worship of the sun became the basis of all the religions of antiquity. Notice that Mr. Pike once again capitalized the word sun. He's making a distinction. He states that the object being worshipped was not the sun, the star that lights the earth during the daylight hours. He capitalizes the word sun as that is what the object being worshipped is, a symbol of an invisible God, because the identity of this God is being kept secret from the overwhelming majority of mankind. The identity of this invisible God was known only to a small percentage of the men on the earth. Manly Pihol, as identified earlier, is another 33rd degree Mason, 
and perhaps the most prolific writer on the subject of occult practices. He wrote in this, he wrote this in his book entitled The Secret Teachings of All Agings, Ages. Sun worship played an important part in nearly all the early pagan mysteries. The solar deity was slain by wicked ruffians who personified the evil principle of the universe. In masonry, the ancient religious principles still survive. However, for the student of the ancient misreligion, religion, as it is called, you might want to refer to my book entitled The New World Order and the 14-hour lecture video by the same name that extends the research beyond the book. I'll only attach the Masons to this ancient worship by quoting their own words. But the worship of this sun god is 6,000 years old in every culture and on every continent, and it needs to be examined and understood. Mr. Pike even connected the sun to another symbol inside the lodge. He wrote this on page 477. The sun, his is the all-seeing eye in our Masonic lodges. Here Mr. Pike connects the sun with the all-seeing eye that is apparently displayed in their lodges. And notice that he is saying that the sun represents a being because he called the sun. Many have connected the Masonic all-seeing eye to the all-seeing eye on the back of the American dollar bill in what has been called the Great Seal of the United States. Both Masonic and non-Masonic writers have concluded that members of the Masons designed both sides of the Great Seal of America. Mr. Pike states that many of the symbols inside the lodge are identical with the symbols of the early sun worshipers. He wrote on page 495 that to the Egyptians, the horned serpent was the hieroglyphic for a god, the god that the believers in the ancient mystery religion worshipped. Notice that the word god is capitalized. We'll spend some time on the serpent as a symbol of the secret god. Mr. Pike wrote this on page 506. The blazing star has been regarded as an emblem of omniscience or the all-seeing eye, which is the, to the ancients was the sun. So here the reader can see that Mr. Pike is connecting the sun, a serpent, and the all-seeing eye. This connection is extremely significant, as you shall soon see. Mr. Pike identified this sun god as being a deity other than the God of the Bible with this quotation taken from page 254. The sun god created nothing. This is an incredible revelation. This thought acknowledges that the Masons believe there are two gods in the universe, a creator god and this other deity, the sun god, who has created nothing. The Masons call their deity the great architect of the universe. It is important to note that the Masons call their deity an architect god rather than a creator god. Human architects do not create anything. They design buildings for the contractor, and even the contractor does not build from nothing. He takes already existing materials to build his structure. 
the creator would actually create the building materials out of nothing. But by calling their deity an architect, the Masons are admitting that their deity has not created anything, just like Mr. Pike's sun god. So the great architect of the universe, the Masonic deity worshipped in the Masonic temples, connected to the sun, a serpent, and the all-seeing eye, is not the god of the Bible, because that god is a creator god who created the universe out of nothing. The Masons have said it in their own literature. Now let me discuss the Masonic rituals for the clues they give us as to who the Masons worship in their religious ceremonies. This is Albert Pike's book entitled The Porch and the Middle Chamber and the Book of the Lodge. It was published in 1872 and appears to be a, quote, ritual intended for instruction only, end quote, and not a substitute for, quote, the American right, end quote. However, on page 14 of the book, he wrote that it was intended to be studied and understood before investiture with the fourth degree. So it appears as if this book was intended to be provided to the third degree Mason if he chose to go on to the fourth degree. The pertinent part of this ritual to the discussion at this time starts with page 111. The venerable master, the equivalent of the president of the lodge, asks the candidate, what is it you most desire? And the candidate answers, light. Then on page 115, the venerable master asks the orator this question, what does thou ask for the candidate? And he answers, light. And on page 116, the venerable master asks the brother orator, what does thou ask for the candidate? And this answer is, the great light. So it is apparent that the master mason is asking for light. But as far as he can tell, the mason does not learn what this light is, nor from where it comes. Until what Mr. Pike called the final instruction. He tells the candidate, the all-seeing eye symbolizes that true knowledge of the deity is the light of which the mason travels in search. Notice that Mr. Pike just taught his master masons, you do not learn the true knowledge of the deity in your church or synagogue nor in the Holy Bible. You learn it in the Masonic Lodge, and even then, the Master Mason is not told anything further. He does not officially know who brings the light, but if he goes on to the 32nd degree, he will learn who brings the light to him. But if he stays at the third degree, he will not learn from the Masons directly what this light represents. If he went on to the 32nd degree, he used to be given Albert Pike's book entitled Morals and Dogma, and he was encouraged to read it all the way through. He would have been taught that there was only one secret inside its pages, and he should think, ponder, and reflect upon its words. 
and he would have been given another clue as to the true knowledge of the deity if you read page 321 of this book. The Mason can know exactly where this light comes from by reading this page. This is what Albert Pike wrote. Lucifer, the light bearer. Strange and mysterious name to give to the spirit of darkness. Lucifer, the son of the morning. Is it he who bears the light? Doubt it not. And he repeats the thought on page 324 when he discusses a devil, the fallen Lucifer or light bearer. It is true. The Masons acknowledge that the light that they are asking for comes from Lucifer, the light bearer, also known as Satan or the devil. The Masons seek light, and Pike identifies the bearer of that light as Lucifer. In fact, the Mason is told to doubt it not. Webster's defines the name Lucifer as meaning L, standing for Latin, bringing light from lucis, meaning light, and fere or fairy, I don't know how to pronounce that, to bring. The dictionary then says Satan is identified with the rebel archangel before his fall. So Lucifer is Latin for light bringer or light bearer, the name of Satan before his fall. So the Mason has been taught that he is asking for light from the light bearer, who according to the Bible was a being who fell to the earth at the beginning of time. Now let me put this into a sequence to show you just what we have learned. We're going to take three statements and then ponder what they teach the initiate. First, the initiate asks for light. Secondly, he is taught that the light is the true knowledge of the deity. Then in the third instance, he is taught that Lucifer is the light bearer, meaning he brings the light that the Mason is in search of. The initiate has been taught to, quote, give close and long study and profound thought, end quote, to what he's been taught. And if he is capable of this, he will then draw the conclusion that Lucifer is the, quote, true knowledge of deity, end quote. And therefore, the great architect of the universe meaning the God being worshipped by the Masons. And that is the secret he has been seeking. And he will understand that he must be very intelligent because he's been taught that you are ignorant if you do not see the secret. Understand that the Masons cannot say that Lucifer is their God directly because if they did, most of the Masons would leave the lodge in protest. And to show the reader that it is not Mr. Pike alone as a Mason who knows that Lucifer is a light bearer, let me provide a quotation from Manley P. Hall's book entitled The Lost Keys of Freemasonry. 
This quote by this 33rd degree Mason is another source for this belief because he wrote this on page 48. When the Mason learns the key to the warrior on the block is the proper application of the dynamo of living power, he has learned the mystery of his craft. What this seems to be saying is that the key to understanding the Masons is to know that the mystery of the craft is knowing that the Mason has a warrior on his side. The seething energies of Lucifer are in his hands. And before he may step onward and upward, he must prove his ability to properly apply energy. So Lucifer is the warrior that the Mason must learn to control before he moves upward through the degrees inside the Masonic Lodge. And once he figures that out, he will have the seething energies of Lucifer in his hands. When Mr. Hall died in August of 1990, the Scottish Rite Journal, the official magazine of the 33rd degree Masonic Lodge, wrote this article on his death. I'm going to show you the two quotations from this article that I put a yellow highlighter on. This is the first one and it reads, he is best known for writing the lost key or keys of Freemasonry. And the second one is, the world is a far better place because of Manly Palmer Hall and we are better persons for having known him and his work. The two work, words, his work, certainly includes his writing since he literally writ, wrote hundreds of books. That means the Masons are better off because of his book entitled The Lost Keys of Freemasonry. And to show you that the book was to be read by the Masons, this is a page from a Royal Arch, magazine, Royal Arch Mason magazine, an official journal of the Masonic Lodge. The headline reads, Books on Freemasonry Make Good Christmas Gifts and is Written to the Wives of Masons. This is a close-up of the lower left-hand side of the list. And as you can see, it includes the book entitled The Lost Keys of Freemasonry by Manley P. Hall. So you can know that this is a highly regarded book by one of the leading Masonic writers of all time. So there is ample evidence that Lucifer is the, the devil, is the god of the Masonic Lodge. It might be helpful for me to interrupt my review of Morals and Dogma to explain a little about this Lucifer, also known as the devil, from the words of the Bible. The Bible student knows that Lucifer is not good, but evil. He knows, as does the reader of the dictionary definition, that Lucifer is another name for Satan, the devil. The Bible reveals that Satan was once an angel who fell from God's presence. The prophet Ezekiel wrote this in chapter 28, verses 14 and 15. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. 
Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. So here we learn that Satan is a created being who is appointed by God as the cherub that covereth. Some believe that this means that Lucifer protected the very throne of God itself. But Lucifer fell. The Bible continued in verses 16 and 17. Thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane, defined as not connected with religion or religious matters. Out of the mountain of God. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. The prophet Isaiah, who wrote around 740 B.C., included some additional information about why Lucifer fell. He wrote in Isaiah chapter 14, in the following verses, that the story continued. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Please notice the north. I will ascend Above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Lucifer wanted to replace God of the Bible of the, on the throne of the universe, and that is still his task on earth. It is important at this point to break with this explanation and add one more piece to the puzzle. As we just read, Isaiah wrote that the throne of God was on the farthest sides of the north. It appears that it would be fair to conclude that the Bible teaches that this must be where God reigns over the universe. Yet the Masons teach that this is a place of darkness. Albert Pike wrote on page 592, To all Masons, the North has immemorially been the place of darkness. And of the great lights of the Lodge, none is in the north. The word immemorially is defined as extending beyond the reach of memory, record, or tradition, indefinitely ancient. So the Masons are saying that the north has been the place of darkness forever. So it does not appear as if the failure to find any northern locations inside of the Masonic Lodge and temples are all over this world is by coincidence. Quite simply, it is because they believe that the darkness is a symbol concealing the God of the Bible. And to understand that, it is necessary to study the devil a little more in detail. The book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 7 and 9 through 9, adds this about the being known as the devil. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, shown later in these verses to be Satan, the devil. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. 
and the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan. And his angels were cast out with him. And God prescribed the punishment for the devil's act of religion, of rebellion. The devil's act of rebellion in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. When the devil fell, he brought one-third of all the agents with him. So Lucifer fell from heaven to the earth with one-third of the angels. This fact will become important a little later. But now let me say that the third part of anything would be a little more than 33%, meaning a three for eternity. This might at least be part one, uh, this might be at least one of the reasons why the number 33 is symbolic to the Masons. Satan came to the earth and it was there that he continued his work. He appeared to Eve, the first female in the Garden of Eden. God's garden had at least one restriction in it to Adam and Eve. It is described in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. It might be important at this point to remember that the Masons have said that the true use of knowledge is to distinguish good from evil. And Satan took advantage of that teaching and tried to convince Eve to violate God's law. The Bible continued in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And Eve listened and broke God's commandment and tasted of the knowledge of good and evil. What this means is that she decided that she and later Adam could be as gods deciding for themselves what was right and wrong. She fell for the lie that men and women should decide these matters for themselves and that they should not listen to the moral teachings of God. The first man and woman decided they were going to make their own morality because they wanted to be as gods knowing good and evil. I would like to show you what happens when you decide that man should decide what is right and wrong. This is Terry Cole Whitaker, a former minister and television evangelist. She apparently felt that Christianity did not meet her needs, so she renounced her ministry in 1985 and started teaching the new religion. She admits that she has had four husbands and four divorces, but after the fourth one, she doesn't speak about whether there was a number five. And she has written this book entitled The Inner Path, From Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. In it, she wrote, 
There will be no more God of vengeance for us to fear. And therefore, no more God-fearing people. The new age will mean the end of religion. So she also wrote that it will mean the end of government. Everyone will govern themselves. There will be no more tyrants and no more organizations to tell us what is good for us and what is bad. So here she is recall she is calling so here she is calling religion tyranny because it is religion that teaches what is right and wrong. That means she thinks that the moral teachings of the religion are folly and we should be freed from their teachings so that each of us can decide for ourselves. Whenever I hear someone say this, I like to add my comment. What a paradise it will be when we eliminate all traffic lights. You see, traffic lights are installed by an organization called the government to tell us who goes first when two or more cars meet at an intersection. The traffic light tells us what is right and wrong. So what she is saying is that the day will soon come when there will be no traffic lights to tell us how to function through an intersection. That is just how warped this thinking is. Imagine the traffic jam that will result with no traffic lights. Boy, I can, I can hardly wait. It'll take me about six months to drive to New York City from, New York, from Tucson, Arizona. But not to worry, because as you shall soon see, I won't have a part six. Now, if every man or woman is to decide for themselves what is right or wrong, there will be no such thing as sin. Terry Cole Whitaker believes that as well. She wrote, You are guiltless. None of what you have done is wrong. There is no such thing as wrong in God's world. Now, at this point, I'd like to ask, just which God is she referring to? The God of the Bible taught us what was wrong, so she must believe in some other God. And to confirm that is exactly what she meant, she added this good news. The good news is that sin is nonsense. There is no one single right way and no one single truth. It is all right to do whatever brings you happiness. So she is echoing the thoughts taught by Albert Pike, John Dewey, and Nikolai Lenin. So Terry Cole Whitaker is not the only one who believes in this strange philosophy. And by the way, here's another. Ernest Hemingway, the world-famous author, wrote this. I know what is right is what you feel good after, and what is evil is what you feel bad after. So there you have it. There are no rights and wrongs. There are only your thoughts as you decide for yourself. Now let me show you that the law for this new way of looking at things has already been written. 
This is a book entitled The Book of the Law, written by Aleister Crowley in 1904. And this is a picture of Mr. Crowley, recognized the world over as being a worshiper of Lucifer, also known as Satan or the devil. Notice that he appears to be making a shadow portrait of a devil with his hand. I guess that means that this must be what he believes Lucifer looks like. He claims that a being who called himself Awas, I don't know how to pronounce it, I'm going to pronounce it Awas, dictated the contents to him in Cairo, Egypt, between noon and 1 p.m. on three successive days, April the 8th, 9th, and 10th, 1904. Notice that noon to 1 o'clock in the afternoon are the hours when the sun is straight overhead and therefore at its most strength. And here is what Awas told him to write. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. There is no law behind do what thou wilt. Awas went on to explain, All events are equally lawful. Take your fill and will of love as ye will. When, where, and with whom ye will. Lust. Enjoy all things of sense. Did you grasp what he just wrote? If you want to take a man or a woman for lustful purposes, you have permission to do so. There is no, and I mean absolutely no, concern whether or not the victim wants to or not. Think about this. He's telling lustful people to take whomever they want, whenever they want. So if you are alone in your home and someone who believes in what Crowley has written wants you for their lustful desires, they have only one word for you. Submit. That is what this philosophy means. And then just to make certain that all who read what he dictated knew who had dictated these words to Crowley, Awas identified himself as I am the secret serpent. So there you have it. Awas was the very devil himself, and he told us that he wanted a world where there is no law except do what thou wilt. Now think about this. Would you want to live in a society where each man decides for himself what is right and wrong? A society which says to a man who wants to steal, it's okay to steal. If a man wants to murder, it's okay to murder. A society where there's no government or religion to restrict certain men's desire, to do whatever gives them happiness. This is the type of society that these men and women envision. Now, as you know, there is a cry in the United States today to separate church and state. The leading proponent of separating church and state was Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States from 1801 to 1809. He was born in 1743 and drafted the Declaration of Independence by the strangest coincidence when he was, <laughs> when he was 33. He wrote a letter to the Baptists of Danbury, Connecticut, in 1802 that has been utilized by those wanting to remove God from the affairs of this government. That letter read in part, I contemplate with sovereign reverence 
that act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. There's the key phrase the proponents use. But let me show you what he meant by that. Let's go back to 1800 when he was in the thick of a party conflict in that year. Thomas Jefferson wrote, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? He was saying that he opposed government and religion just like the people we have discussed. He had to be referring to his conclusion that church and state, when merged, are tyranny. So he wanted to oppose any form of tyranny, including the tyranny of his two sworn enemies, state and religion. In other words, it is part of the process of separating man from the God who gave us morality. So it is all part of a plan to separate man from his God so that man will be free to decide morality for himself. But he wasn't just talking about any religion. He was very specific as to which, as to which religion he was objecting. He wrote this letter in 1823, just three years before he died. And the day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the Supreme Being as his father in the womb of a Virgin Mary will be classed with the fable, the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. But we may hope that the dawn of reason and freedom of thought in these United States will do away with all this artificial scaffolding. So Jefferson didn't want just to separate church and state. He wanted to separate man from Christianity. Now let's talk about the issue. Let's see if the Constitution speaks about, quote, a separation of church and state, end quote. The Constitution reads in the First Amendment, part of the Ten Amendments called the Bill of Rights. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or, or, please notice that the First Amendment has two parts, separated by the word or, meaning each statement stands by itself, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Notice that the proponents of a separation of church and state never quote the second part. They only say that the Constitution wants to separate church and state. Now let's go back. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Today's courts are forcing school districts to remove paintings of Jesus from building hallways or prohibiting mentions of God or Jesus in commencement exercises or telling children they cannot bring Bibles into the school even if they read them only during lunchtime. Now the question becomes, what law did Congress pass that required schools to put pictures of Jesus up on the walls? What law 
did Congress pass that required students to mention God or Jesus in their commencement exercises? What law did Congress pass requiring children to carry Bibles to school? Notice that the Constitution says Congress shall pass no law. If the Congress did not pass any such law, the courts of America are powerless to act. They can only act when they determine an act or law of Congress is unconstitutional. Barring that, they simply do not have a voice. They cannot act. So why are they acting? Because they want to take God out of our schools. They want especially to take Jesus out of our schools. That is what it means when they say separate church and state. And to show you that America has already experimented with such a plan, let me go back to 1880 to a small town called Liberal, Missouri. And an atheist named George Walzer who founded the town. His objective was to separate church and state. Mr. Walzer had once been a Christian believer, but he had broken away to become an atheist. His stated purpose was to create a city with no God, hell, churches, or saloons. He wrote that he wanted to build a city that should be exclusively the home of the infidels, where believers or where unbelievers could bring up their children without religious training. It actually drew 300 people who came to live in this town. A Christian preacher, debater, and author by the name of Clark Braden visited the city about five years after it was founded. He discovered that the boast about sobriety of the town was false. Only a few of the infidels were total abstainers. Nearly every inhabitant, old and young, swore habitually. Lack of reverence for parents and of disobedience to them was the rule. There was no lack of loose women in their public dances. In no town was slander more prevalent and the charges more vile. The hotels were little more than houses of prostitution. He found sexually transmitted diseases and murder. Drunken husbands who abused their wives and children. And heartache caused by divorce, adultery, and covetousness. He also charged that nine-tenths of the people in Liberal would move if they could leave their property. But they were locked into a mortgage, and no one wanted to buy their house to move in. Reverend Braden ended by saying that these are the fruits of atheism, a society in which everyone does that which is right in his own eyes. But what he was saying was that this is what happens when you separate church and state. This is what happens when you create a society where each man makes the decisions for himself what is right and wrong. Uh, gee, no one could have ever predicted those results. Finally, the town fathers asked churches to come in and establish a religious base for the moral 
and legal system of the town. Another author who visited in the town of Liberal, Missouri, wrote that one of the town's fathers said he would never again want to live in a town without churches. A few days after Reverend Braden publicized his charges, he was arrested for criminal libel and tried. And the jury found him innocent, meaning there was no cause for action. Liberal Missouri survived. The Christians had saved it. This is a slide made from a current Rand McNally map, and that is Liberal Missouri up near the top center, as you can see, north of Joplin, Missouri. America is slowly moving towards the separation of church and state, and America will reap the whirlwind. But you say, we are more enlightened now. What wouldn't work then will certainly work today. And here is the evidence that we are not more enlightened now. <laughs> I, I'm not going to comment. You'll have to judge whether this young man cares about uh, okay, I'm just going to leave it at that. So we shall continue to separate church and state. And America will soon learn that no one would ever again want to live in a country without churches. Let me now make a very interesting point. The Bible teaches in John chapter 8, verse 12, that Jesus, the one revealed in the Scriptures, claimed to be the source of the light when he said, I am the light of the world. So there are two claimants in the world to being the bearer of light, Satan and Jesus. I would like to point out one more thought that has an immense bearing on the discussion. We've already discussed the fact that God instructed Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is what Pike wrote about this discussion on page 567 of his book, Morals and Dogma. To prevent the light from escaping, the demons, notice the demons, plural, forbade Adam to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, by which he would have known of the empire of light and that of darkness. He obeyed an angel of light, induced him to transgress, and gave him, meaning Adam, the means of victory. This means that Pike believed that the demons who forbade Adam to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the triune God of the Bible, meaning the God who consists of three beings, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that the angel of light who induced Adam to do so was Lucifer, also called Satan, the devil. Mr. Pike has everything backwards. Or the Masons would say that the Masons have it right and the Bible has it all backwards. The thought that the Christians have it backwards when they claim that the devil is evil can be traced to sources other than Albert Pike. This is Eliphas Levi, another occultist like Mr. Pike, meaning he wrote about hidden matters. These words of praise for Mr. Levi come from Doreen Valiente, the self-professed witch, who wrote the book entitled The ABC of Witchcraft. The distinguished, the distinguished 19th century French occultist Eliphas Levi declared Baphomet of the Templars to be identical with the god of the witches Sabbat. 
So there is a connection between Albert Pike, the Masons, the Knights Templar, and witchcraft, a belief in Baphomet, although there is not a general agreement amongst the Masons that Baphomet was the god of the Templars. This quotation taken from Albert Mackey's encyclopedia, for instance, teaches that the god known as Baphomet was imaginary. He wrote, Baphomet, the imaginary idol which the Knights Templar were accused of employing in their mystic rites. Mr. Levi did include a drawing of the god known as Baphomet in his book entitled Transcendental Magic. And here it is. It shows a being that appears to be both goat and human. His arms and body appear to be human, but the head and cloven feet are from a goat. The animal has two horns and wings and appears to be seated on the top of a globe. This is also the same drawing that Doreen Valiente used on the cover of her book. So at least the god Baphomet, also known as the goat of Mendes, was real to a witch, and Eliphas Levi, the friend of Albert Pike. This is the statue of President George Washington. It was commissioned by Congress in 1832 so that it could stand in the Capitol Rotunda. But when it was delivered, the sculpture had the president seated in a chair. Many have seen a similar <laughs> similarity in the statue of Washington and the drawing of the seated Baphomet. But returning to the point being discussed, the reader of these words can know that the Mason and the other writers of the occult science believe that the Christians have it all backwards. Lucifer is the good God, and the God of the Bible is the evil one. It might be important to mention here that Lucifer is not a God, and that he can never be a God. And the reason for that is because there is only one God. The God of the Bible teaches in Isaiah 45, 22, For I am God, and there is none else. But the belief that Lucifer is a good God should not come as a shock to those who have read Albert Pike's book entitled Morals and Dogma. All they have to do is read quotations like this one taken from page 294. Christ teaching the religion of love. The religion of love proved to be the religion of hate. And infinitely more, the religion of persecution. So Mr. Pike believes that it is the Christians who preach love but practice hate. They preach toleration and practice persecution. According to Mr. Pike, they are truly the force of darkness. Remember, Albert Pike said it in his own words. The reader might consider examining additional quotations from other Mason adepts that show that they are also considered Christ to be the enemy by reading both the Unseen Hand and the New World Order. But now the coded language has been broken. When the Masons say they worship a god, they do. They worship their god, Lucifer. We can know it for certain because they have said it in their own literature. They have stated that secret in a coded language that has been broken so that all can now understand. Now I would like to discuss additional evidence that the Masons think that their god will overcome the god of the Bible. The reader will remember that Mr. Pike stated on page 32 that masonry is a struggle, a march rather, a march and a struggle toward the light. Manly Pihal discussed his understanding about the struggle this way. The struggle was between religion as temporal authority and the mystery faith 
the internal road of light. So both Mr. Pike and Mr. Hall believe that the forces of light are in a struggle with the forces of darkness. And Mr. Pike is certain which side will win that struggle. He wrote on page 275 of Morals and Dogma, light will finally overcome darkness. Now the reader can see just how important it is that Mr. Pike intended the God of the Bible as being the force of darkness. It is here that he admits that the religious view of the Masons, the light seekers, and their light bearer, God, will finally overcome the God they claim is of the darkness, the God of the Bible. Pike wrote, Human reason, freed by Lucifer, leaps into the throne of God and waves her torch over the ruins of the universe. Here Pike states once, states once again that it is his belief that human reason, their God, will ultimately succeed in removing the God of the Bible from his rightful throne in the universe. He is also saying that the God of the Bible has made a mess of the universe. That's what he meant when he referred to the ruins of the universe, and that man's mind, released by Lucifer, will restore it to the perfection that mankind knew in the Garden of Eden. Albert Mackey in his encyclopedia confirmed this fact by writing this, Ordo ab chao, meaning order out of chaos, a motto of the 33rd degree. That means that the 33rd degree Masons believe that they will bring order out of the chaos, the ruins created by the God of the Bible. In fact, Mr. Pike states that Satan, the devil, also known as Lucifer, came to earth to benefit mankind. He came to free him from the tyranny of God, the God that they believe will not let man exercise his free will, the God who restricts man's freedom by providing him with a set of moral absolutes. Mr. Pike wrote, Satan, this is not a person but a force created for good. It is the instrument of liberty or free will, meaning man's free choice without the moral restraints put on him by God. The Bible depicts Satan as a force of evil, but here the Mason learns that he is a force created for good. Satan is an instrument of free will, meaning that Satan wants man to exercise his own free will by deciding for himself what is right and wrong. And to show the reader that Mr. Pike meant exactly that, he repeated the thought on page 94. The, the freedom of the man lies in his reason. So man is not totally free because God restricts freedom to think and to reason by confining him with moral absolutes. According to Pike, man is not totally free if he must obey the teachings of God. This is the thinking of the Masonic Lodge. We have seen that this is consistent with the other thoughts of Mr. Pike as recorded in his book entitled Morals and Dogma. So Mr. Pike is awaiting the day when Lucifer will free man from the alleged tyranny of God. And the reader is asked to doubt it not. And to, to conclude this section, all of what Mr. Pike said in his book may be summed up in this final quotation taken from page 274. Behold the object, the end of the great speculations of antiquity. The ultimate annihilation of evil, meaning religion and government, 
and restoration of man to his first estate, meaning a return to the Garden of Eden where man can live without the God of the Bible and his moral teachings. By a Redeemer, a Messiah, a Christos, reason or power of deity. Let the record show that Mr. Pike was not referring to the biblically prophesied return of Jesus Christ when he wrote about the return of a Christos or Messiah. He was talking about the appearance of someone else who will free man by freeing his power to reason. Those who believe this man is needed argue that he is now on the earth and that his name is Lord Maitreya. And Mr. Pike believes that the day when he will make his presence known to all of the people of the earth is near. You read it in his own book. I think it would be helpful to show you that there are millions of people claiming this Lord Maitreya is on the earth right now. The first one I would like to discuss is Gene Dixon, who lived from 1918 to 1997. Ruth Montgomery wrote a book about Mrs. Dixon in 1965 entitled A Gift of Prophecy, in which she talked about a, quote, vision, end quote, that Jean had. The vision, which Jean considers the most significant of her life, occurred on February the 5th, 1962. She saw the brightest sun she had ever seen. Stepping out of the brightness was a pharaoh and Queen Nefertiti. Notice the connection of this vision to Egypt. As the, the couple thrust forth the baby as if offering it to the entire world. A child born somewhere in the Middle East will revolutionize the world. Before the close of the century, meaning sometime before 1999, he will bring together all mankind in one all-embracing faith. Mankind will begin to feel the great force of this man in the early 1980s. And during the subsequent 10 years, the world will, as we know it, will be reshaped into one without wars and suffering. His power will grow greatly until 1999 at which time the peoples of the earth will probably discover the full, full meaning of the vision. I think you can see that Jean Dixon was no prophet. Her vision is nothing more than a pack of falsehoods, yet the book about her became a worldwide bestseller. The predicted great force of this man never materialized. And there are still people on this earth that believe the claims of a man calling himself Lord Maitreya. He is on the earth now awaiting his day of announcement, the day he will disclose himself and his missions. The Masons are waiting for that day as well. I have two photographs of this man called Lord Maitreya. Both were taken in June of 1988 when he appeared before 6,000 people in Kenya, Africa. The word Maitreya means the happy one, the one who brings joy according to those who believe in him. It was reported that he appeared out of the blue, and it has been reported that he can appear and disappear at will. 
And in fact, he can appear in different places simultaneously. <laughs> this is Benjamin Krebs. I don't mean to laugh. This is, this is a religious view. This is Benjamin Krebs, who is a student of Lord Maitreya. He's written two books. The first of which is The Reappearance of the Christ and the Masters of Wisdom. And the second is Maitreya's Mission. His first book said this on pages 28 and 29. The hierarchy of masters is the custodian of a plan. And they substand all world events and constitute the invisible government of the planet. And in his second book, he claimed on page 13 that Maitreya, the Christ, comes as the head of that group known as the spiritual hierarchy of masters. So his two books are intended to prepare the way for the masters of wisdom, those illumined men who for millennia have guided humanity's evolution. And in both of these books, Krem declares that he is engaged in the work of preparation for the Christ. Krem tells his readers that Lord Maitreya came from the Himalayas, where he has lived for thousands of years. He came down on July the 8th, 1977, and stayed in Pakistan before he appeared in the Asian community of London, England on July the 19th, 1977. He has written that on a very special day called the Day of Decoration, Maitreya will mentally overshadow all of humanity simultaneously. Each of us will hear his words inwardly, telepathically, in our own language. Now, uh, how, how, is he, how is he going to do this? And that was answered by Benjamin Graham. The radio and television networks of the world will be linked up, and he will make his appeal. Now, uh, if, 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 if he's God, it appears as if he would not need to link up the radio and television networks to communicate with us. What, 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 what if we're asleep? What if we don't have a radio or a television? What if we're away from any radio and television set? How is he going to overshadow us? But he was going to mentally overshadow us, all of us telepathically, simultaneously. Uh, excuse me, uh, Mr. Cram, which is it? Is he going to overshadow us or communicate through radio and television? Ralph Epperson wants to know. <laughs> Christians hope for the Christ's return. The Buddhists look for the coming of another Buddha, the Lord Maitreya. The Muslims await the coming of the Iman, Imam Mahdi, the Hindus, the Krishna, and the Jews, the Messiah. And just so we know, Maitreya does not claim to be Jesus. He claims that Jesus is a disciple of his. Maitreya said this on November the 10th, 1977. Those who look for me in terms of my beloved disciple, the Master Jesus, will find his qualities in me. I would now like to discuss another source of information on this hierarchy of masters. This is Charles Ledbeater, a student of the Theosophists of Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, and was taught about this hierarchy that he called the Great White Brotherhood. 
He reported that the great white have their headquarters somewhere in the Himalayas and that he traveled there to actually meet these ascended masters. And this book entitled The Masters of the, and the Path actually names those people who rule the world. I will not spend time on revealing who these people are, but I would recommend that you get a copy of the book and read it yourself. I, for one, believe he is telling the truth about these masters, and I believe it's claimed that they run the entire conspiracy. In other words, the Great White Brotherhood is the top layer of the pyramid, meaning there is no layer above them, and they apparently communicate directly with Lucifer. This is what he learned and wrote about in another of his books entitled Freemasonry and its Ancient Mystic Rites. Behind the whole system of Masonic initiation was and is the White Lodge itself. But we have been warned about those who claim to be Christ or even that Jesus is the disciple of theirs. Jesus himself warned us in Luke chapter 21, verse 8. And Jesus said, Take heed that ye not be deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. Go ye not therefore after them. But remember that Dan Brown said the Bible is a product of man, not of God. And Ralph Epperson says, the Bible, not written by man, but written by God. I would now like to return to my study of Lord Maitreya. Mr. Krem made a statement that I would like to examine to show you that this Lord Maitreya is a fraud. He wrote, the hierarchy has been in existence for about 17 million years. I would like to remind you of the quote used by Donald Patton about the shrinkage of the sun. The sun would have been twice its present size about 100,000 years ago. So the question that we should ask Lord Maitreya if he shows up is this one. How big was the sun 17 million years ago? Once again, the Bible is correct when it says the universe was created about 6,000 years ago. Let me show you other evidence that this Lord Maitreya is a phony. Benjamin Krem said this in 1977. Slowly, gradually, over the next 25 years, the hierarchy will externalize itself. Now, using College Math 101, if we take 1977 and add in 25 years, we will get the year 2002. <laughs> so if the hierarchy has been more visible since then, I guess I must have missed it. <laughs> That's the story of my life. I always miss the big things of life. Here the hierarchy has externalized itself, and I missed it. But being honest, the hierarchy has not externalized itself, but nonetheless, they continue doing their work. And the reason is because they plan on creating a society where each man will be free to decide for himself. Krem said this was the task of Lord Maitreya. His task will be to inaugurate the age of reason, and this hierarchy believes they will triumph. 
Maitreya was quoted as saying, my army of light will surely triumph, and those who those will be replaced, those, forgive me, those who will be replaced will be those in the organized religions. Krem said, gradually, Christianity, Buddhism, and other religions will wither away, slowly, as the people die out of them. This statement will become important as we continue our search. Maitreya was originally scheduled to make his day of declaration on, or sometime around May 30th, 1982. This advertisement was placed in over 20 newspapers worldwide on April that 25th, 1982, to prepare certain newspaper readers for his appearance. A copy of this ad appeared in the Arizona Republic, the principal newspaper in Phoenix, Arizona. I, I guess that we in Tucson, Arizona, were not capable of handling this enormous truth. <laughs> because the ad didn't appear in either of our two newspapers. The advertisement said that Maitreya would acknowledge his identity, and with the next two months, he will speak humanity through a worldwide television and radio broadcast. But for some strange reason, all of this didn't happen. But wait, maybe it did, <laughs> maybe it did and I missed it as well. <laughs> I can offer, cannot offer any explanation why it didn't happen except this one. <laughs> Lord Maitreya is a fraud. He's as phony as a $1 bill. But Benjamin Krem is not the only one talking about the appearance of Lord Maitreya. This is Alice Bailey, a leader in the occult teachings of the ancient mystery religion. As you can see, she lived from 1880 to 1949. And this is the book she wrote in 1957 entitled The Externalization of the Hierarchy. The publishing company that published her works was created in 1922 and was originally called Lucifer Publishing Company. However, the name was changed to the Lucis Publishing Company, perhaps as a way to avoid criticism of their original name. This quote is taken from page 670 of her book. The one thing which humanity needs today is a realization that there is a plan, which is definitely working out through all world happenings. And all that has occurred in man's historical past and all that has happened lately is assuredly in line with that plan. And then on page 511, she reveals just who is actively promoting this plan. The three main channels through which the preparation for the new age is going on might be regarded as the church, the Masonic fraternity, and the educational field. So here Mrs. Bailey admitted that one of the three channels being used to make these needed changes is the Masonic Lodge. But notice as well, it appears as if she is saying that the Christian church is also leading us to these changes in our civilization. Now if that is what she meant, the Christian faith has been infiltrated by those who are leading us away from its traditional beliefs. And then she adds that the third channel 
is our public school system. This is why I suggest that parents take their children out of public schools and homeschool them or put them into a good private school with a good curriculum, a good Christian school as well. It might be of interest here to examine the symbol of the National Education Association abbreviated to the NEA. I'm not a member of this group, but I knew about this symbol, and I went to the Tucson office of the NEA and asked if they would give me a sticker of this symbol. I asked the man in the office if he knew what it meant, and he replied that he did not. And I've been unable to locate an official explanation as to what this symbol means, so I'll give you my opinion. The letter inside the triangle is the Greek letter pi, meaning the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter. This value is a universal absolute. It is the same no matter where you measure it in the entire universe. So I believe it represents absolutes in the broadest sense, including moral absolutes. Notice that the red arrow cuts through, or it pierces, or it kills, or it destroys the absolute. So the purpose of education, according to this NEA symbol, is the destruction of all absolutes, but especially moral absolutes. Notice, and I repeat, this is just my opinion, and I certainly could be wrong, but it is what I consider to be the real purpose of the NEA and our public schools. Let me cite the teachings of John Dewey once again, the father of what they call progressive education, and call this nation's greatest educator by the public school establishment. This is the August 10, 1974, of the Saturday Review, issued on their 50th anniversary. They asked various leaders in various fields of endeavor who they considered to be the most influential man in their particular field during the years of 1924 to 1974. And in the field of education, those educators polled, selected John Dewey. One of those who selected Mr. Dewey said this about him. No individual has influenced the thinking of American educators more. So Dewey was a major force in changing our public school system. And perhaps we can find out why. We've examined these comments before, but they're pertinent again at this point. Dewey had written, there is no God and there is no soul. Hence, there are no needs for the props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, then immutable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed natural law or permanent absolutes. That means the moral absolute from the Ten Commandments of thou shalt not murder is no longer valid because there are no such things as permanent moral absolutes. And that is the very thing that the NA symbol is saying. The purpose of education is to abolish all moral absolutes, just as the leading authority on education said. Now can you understand why 
our public school system has such 